0: This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide.
1: Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbents, independent.
0: We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened.
2: Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia.
0: Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvallis from RM Breakfast joining you from Wurundjeri Country.
1: And I'm Frank Kelly from Frankly on the Gadigal land, the Aora Nation. And PK, a big reform announced by the government this weekend. Um, they're planning to extend paid parental leave from the current 18 weeks to 26 weeks. This was a, a major recommendation from the Job Summit, you might remember. At the time the government said, look, you know, they'd like to do it. They can see the, the benefits of it uh, economically and other but they couldn't afford it right now well they obviously had a bit of a rethink although while this announcement to extend ppl to 26 weeks made a big splash the fine print revealed it wouldn't get to the 26 weeks until 2026 so every year from next june the paid parental leave will go up by two weeks it's a start but not the full monty for another four years i think it's
0: important to point that out Yeah, it's an important um, part of the story. Look, Fran, it's a big deal, though. It's a pretty big reform. Paid parental leave really hasn't been increased since Labor were last in government, where they made the thing, (laughs) to be clear. Mm. Like, they actually legislated its existence. And the idea of six months was always the sort of holy grail policy, the best way to do it. Well,
1: yeah, because many other countries have it. We're actually lagging behind a whole lot of other countries that you know we we would think of ourselves on the par, on a par with. And and our parental leave scheme is
0: actually you know um, a pale imitation, really, of some. Mm. And this is about sending a message, I think, to parents, especially women, that the government will. Have we'll see things through a gender lens, mm. and we'll try to address these very entrenched issues in our workforce. Now, a new element of the policy is that PPL will now be able to be uh, shared between two parents. This is a significant uh, change. There's a lot of detail still to be worked out, though, and it's actually been um, sent off now in terms of working out exactly the distribution and the rules around it to the um, the special uh, committee that's been set up that's going to be he- that's headed by Sam Mostyn, businesswoman uh, activist in this space, to try and work out how you do it and. Uh, There is is thinking, if you look at best practice analysis across the world, that, you know, there needs to be an element of it, which is so-called use it or lose it, where... If, if an element of it is not used by the secondary parent, which is mostly men, but of course there are same-sex families too, but mostly men, um, that you have to kind of almost force them to use it or by threatening that you lose it, <laughs> it sort of forces their hand, the idea there. And let's be honest, it is actually very actively trying to engineer change, men more involved in parenting. The research shows that if men are more active at that part- time, it becomes a lifelong Habit, if you like, and Mm. and that, of course, creates an environment where men and women are more equal Mm. in the workforce and in other places, too. Women earn more higher incomes if they are more attached to the workforce. So all of this matters and um and and so lots of detail to be determined but I thought it was an, an important moment for labor to be saying that they're going to do this and it was a surprise in many ways friend because we didn't know this would happen so soon I expected in the first term labor would do something like this I was surprised at the at the speed of the announcement
1: yeah but it goes to this emphasis that Anthony Albanese had before the election and then we saw it come up really center stage in the uh, job summit about gender equity and we're going to see more of that this this week in terms of gender pay, because on Thursday of next week, we'll get the full details of Tony Burke's new workplace relations bill, which is called the Secure Jobs Better Pay Bill. Labor says it's about helping low paid workers get a better deal. We know this bill will do a few things. It will end For instance, the secrecy that happens in most workplaces that currently stops staff from discussing their pay with colleagues, and the idea of that is that men often get paid more than women for the same job, and if you don't know, if you can't find out what someone else is being paid, you can't know there's a gap there. So that's one pretty simple thing it will do. Uh, But it also establishes two new Fair Work Commission panels focused on closing the gender pay gap. So it's putting gender equity right into the core of the Fair Work Commission's uh, job description, really. But the big and contentious change that will be proposed eventually, uh, we think it'll be in this bill next week, we're not sure, is a proposal for multi-employer bargaining, which allows employers across industries like childcare and aged care, so again, female-dominated industries, to negotiate the same paying conditions instead of having to negotiate individually. A lot of business groups we know don't want this. They're suspicious of this change. They certainly are saying there hasn't been enough consultation around it yet. You can't announce it yet. So let's see if that is actually included when Tony Burke introduces this legislation next week.
0: Yeah, it's going to be a significant um Bill, I do think it's going to be actually difficult for Labor. Business is going to get louder and louder on this. They're really going to fight that uh, multi-employer bargaining. Many elements are really concerned about it. But my understanding is that Labor's pretty committed to it. Um, And again, that gender lens language I just used, uh, when it comes to PPL, they will frame it within that, which is that you can only get increases for these feminised workforces. And remember, they did make wages front and centre part of their election campaign, that they're going to get wages moving. Mm. So in many ways, if we're going to talk about election promises, which we'll do a little later, and, you know, tax and all those sorts of things, that was an election promise that they would do it. So you can see it that way too. Yeah,
1: and and, and Tony Burke has, has also indicated he's interested in getting that multi-employer bargaining through in a hurry for those feminized industries he's he's saying look I'm not really I'm, I'm not really mindful at the moment of you know construction um c- building industries those sorts of things that already have a lot of power he said I'm concerned about these industries so let's see if they come in in a staged way perhaps this multi employer bargaining only for certain sectors we'll see
0: yeah So soon we're going to be joined by ABC Business Editor Ian Verinder to talk about next week's federal budget, which is a key moment, I think, for this new government. It is their first... Labor budget in many years, the first budget to be delivered by the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. So very important. And we'll talk about that in more detail in terms of what we know and what we can expect. But something else we have to mention this week is the government's move to reverse the former Morrison government's decision to recognise West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Now, the handling of this issue seems to have been a bit of a bungle by Labor, Firstly, Guardian Australia wrote an article after they observed, I don't know if it was a tip-off or what, but either way, it's good work. They observed it was it was a good story. Mm. Um that DF, that the DFAT website had quietly deleted references to Australia recognising West Jerusalem as the Israeli capital. A really important um significant and historical um decision was made by the previous government and that there'd been a reversal. Then, obviously that got everyone in the media asking questions and that was denied uh, by the government. They were like, no, there's been no change. That's the language they use. That's a very specific form of language the government's used. There's been no change. So that made everyone go, okay, right, there's no change. Penny Wong issued a statement insisting that, that no decision had been made and then the next day, right, pretty quickly I was shocked at the speed, it did happen. Um they had announced that there was this change um and it was announced on a Jewish holiday and uh, the critics were pretty enraged, Fran. Um, Many, many, the Israeli government, the Australian ambassador to Israel was hauled in. Now, that's obviously a bit of uh, theatrics, but it does set up just the anger of the Israeli government. Many of the key lobby groups are very, very angry at the way it was handled, but also at the substantive decision. It was... In my view, bungled in its handling, even though we did know this was coming in terms of the decision plan.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And um, I think even the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has conceded this. Here he is on ABC Radio Sydney with Richard Glover. It could have been done better.
2: Oh, look, of course, some things can can always uh, be be done better. But uh, the truth is that people, we have been very clear about what uh, our position was and indeed... Uh, the former government was duplicitous. They said that the embassy would move and, of course, didn't move.
1: And that's a point to make too. But there's the Prime Minister conceding it could have been done better, but also making the point our embassy is still in Tel Aviv. We haven't moved it and now Australia won't be moving it. But it was the policy of the Morrison government to shift it. So what we've got here is Effectively, there's a difference between government policy and government position. It was Labor's position, has been since 2018 when, when Scott Morrison first announced the change, to leave our embassy in Tel Aviv. But government policy on the books remained the Morrison government plan to shift to West Jerusalem. And that remains that until the federal, the new government cabinet signs off on a change. That hadn't happened. But Suddenly it did happen in a rush. So, yes, this was badly managed. In the end, the government was pushed into changing the policy on the run because the story was running. The foreign minister, I think, was heading out of the country that night, so it needed to get done, needed to be dealt with, so they just bit the bullet knowing whenever they did it they were going to get an adverse reaction from Israel, from parts of the, uh, the Jewish community here. Timing was terrible on a Jewish holiday. The government was aware of that, but they just thought, we've got to, we've got to move on because uh, Senator Penny Wong will be out of the country. So it it could have. It should have been done better. The Albanese government and the department, frankly, I mean, they're the ones that posted the changes, I understand it, obviously still have some trading wheels on here.
0: Yeah, uh, that's definitely bungling. Look, I think it's important to say that uh, that one of the arguments that's been made is that we were shocked, surprised uh, from the opposition, for instance. No, this, as you say, was Labor policy, but... When and how does matter because of the the incredible tensions around all of this? Um, I put the, those criticisms to Labor frontbencher Chris Bowen, followed by former Coalition member for Wentworth, who was at the centre, of course, of that of the by election. It was his seat at the time. He's, he's lost it. Former ambassador to Israel, Dave Sharma. I tell you what could have been managed better, Patricia. The previous
2: government cynically, pathetically changing what had been a bipartisan policy for decades since the 1940s in a pathetic attempt to get votes in the Wentworth by-election. The clear fact that this was not communicated to the Israel's government in advance, which is the normal courtesy you would extend to a friend in international relations, I think shows that this was policy made on the run. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't planned, it wasn't rolled out properly, it wasn't handled well.
0: So there you go. Um, And I'm sure that will continue to make some waves, although a lot of the focus is very much politically at the moment, squarely on the budget. Should we bring our guest in, Fran? Yeah, let's do it. Ian Verinder is the ABC's business editor and our guest in the party room. Ian, welcome.
2: Morning, PK. Morning, Fran. Uh, Fantastic
1: to have you here as we approach budget week. But we're approaching budget week, in It's normally in May. And here we are. It's October and we've got the budget kind of frisson going. It's like a bonus track, this budget, isn't it? So do you expect this is going to do what budgets normally do? Or is it more like some kind of economic statement to flag a change in direction, maybe score a few political points? What do you expect?
2: Uh, Look, all budgets are partly about economics and a lot about politics. And, you know, they they tend to spell out where a government Believes it should be, you know, meddling in the economy or not, you know, meddling in the economy. And you know, there's been obviously different schools of thought about, you know, how much governments should be involved in the economy that go back decades. Um, this one, I guess, is more about setting the scene, about laying out what the challenges are that we have ahead of us, uh, and really, I guess, uh, coming clean on the situation in which we find ourselves now, which, you know. It was not really that apparent from the May budget that uh, that was brought down.
1: Well, that's true. But Jim Chalmers has been doing an awful lot of that since he became Treasurer. He's been having this conversation with us all, laying down the challenges. So we kind of know that. What do you think Labor needs to actually do in this first budget for it to be seen to be a success?
2: Um, uh, look, that's a really difficult question to answer because I would have thought that there's a couple of things that actually really need to be done right now and which the government has had the political capital to be able to, to use to make some fairly dramatic moves and it appears that they are not going to do that. Um, so, you know, particularly around the Stage 3 tax cuts after we've seen what's gone on in the UK um, and I think the opportunity was there if, if the government so desired to actually make some changes to those so that it would improve our long-term budget position. And the other key area is really around energy and gas in particular. And um, there are some changes that they could make there, particularly around um, how you tax the windfall profits that are coming through from uh, the big uh, energy producers and suppliers in Australia because that is what is driving our entire inflation problem. Not just us, the globe, but we're in this unique situation where we have enormous amounts of energy that we send to the rest of the world and yet on the East Coast we find ourselves... Um, subjected to these shortfalls that are pushing up prices through the roof.
0: Mm, mm. They're still looking at that code of conduct when it comes to gas. But as you just mentioned, the stage three tax cuts were under discussion, then it was all put away. But I interviewed the treasurer, Jim Chalmers on RM Breakfast on Thursday morning, and he said the forecast cost of the stage three tax cuts has increased, not by a small figure, $11 billion. Here's what he had to say.
2: From, uh, I think the last time that we had a look at it, I think, we're expecting that equivalent 10-year cost to be uh, around 254 billion yeah over 10 years and i think the ford estimates cost from memory is a bit under 41 billion dollars
1: that's uh... A fair bit of money, mm. more
2: not small change. Not no. small
1: change. Eleven billion bucks over ten years. You can
2: do a lot with that. Eleven billion dollars. You can.
1: Um, that's all, even more reason, I suppose, for the government to reset those tax cuts, recalibrate those tax cuts. But you're saying, why would they miss this opportunity to do it now? Maybe. The, I mean, I would have thought that if they moved on the stage three tax cuts in this budget so early in this term, it's just opening the way for a political attack about broken promises. Maybe Strategically, isn't it better just to leave that a little longer and let the argument build for that?
2: Um, I don't agree with that because I think the challenges that face us, particularly around repairing the budget, are so great that you actually really need to act as soon as possible.
1: Yeah, but this money is not being spent until 2024. That's
2: true. But if you you set the new parameters now and make some tough decisions about what should be done, you know, if you look at what's going on in the UK just in the past couple of weeks, financial markets, which normally absolutely applaud and cheer tax cuts. Yeah, they uh, love them. (laughs) They they more than love them. And now what they've done is they've penalised the UK government and sent it to essentially as a government with no effective mandate anymore. They've sent it to Coventry and they're saying, we do not want these tax cuts because they are irresponsible. They are going to wreck the UK economy's budget uh, and the economy itself. And so you really need to get rid of them. And that is precisely what the UK government well, has done. Well, they're
1: going to do two things, aren't they? They're going to shrink the revenue base and they're going to be an inflationary... Um you know, input into the economy at a time when inflation is running high. So yeah. it's just the wrong the wrong thing for that moment. But, you know, this government, the Albanese government, argues, well, 2024, let's see what the scenario is. But I think you're right. I, just, I think they just didn't want to set these political horses running yet and they will do it. Mm. But what about the windfall um, profits tax that you talked about the UK's brought in for their uh, oil and gas industry? I mean, why is our government so resistant to that given given the the inflationary impact of power prices
2: Possibly because Jim Chalmers was Wayne Swan's principal advisor during the uh, introduction of the mineral resources rent tax, the mining tax, as it was called back then. They got clobbered for that. He's got PTSD, you think? Yeah, that's right. I mean, they're deeply scarred by that experience, I think. And and I guess they do not want to be seen to be knee-jerk. They do not want to be seen to be making policy on the run, all the kind of things that they accused the Morrison government of doing. But there are occasions when I think you're faced with a crisis, you're faced with something that actually requires action, and I think this is one of those times now. Now, you did mention, Fran, a little earlier about the uh, uh, memorandum of understanding that uh, has been signed and the code of conduct that's been signed with the big uh, gas producers. Well, there's been a code of conduct there for quite a number of years and it clearly hasn't worked. I mean, Malcolm Turnbull was forced to introduce this uh, gas mechanism, this trigger to try and, you know, take a stick to the gas companies and beat them around the head and make sure they provided enough gas that was six years ago mm. i mean the threat still... of
1: that was supposed to be enough to make the the gas companies fall into line but it didn't and no. they didn't use it so now you know labor's taking it a step further
2: but yeah. I, I do think there's some uh action that's required around that because as i said the, the one of the major forces behind the inflationary problem f- that the world is now facing is to do with with gas. Gas is a key ingredient in producing electricity in Australia. And, you know, one of the big uh, electricity providers just uh, a fortnight ago indicated we would be getting more electricity price rises next year into the order of about 35%.
0: Mm. Now, we started this conversation before you entered our party, uh, Ian, where we mentioned paid parental leave and the surprising announcement in terms of how early it came um, that the government would move to the 26-week scheme, which looks like it'll cost a bit of money in the out years. Do we know the total cost, Ian?
2: Um, I don't think we will know that until Tuesday night. The total cost. Um, there's some things I think they want to keep uh, uh, under their belt. But I guess what they'll be saying is that it, while it's going to cost X amount of dollars, this is actually going to generate benefits for the economy. It will. Uh, so it, it's a cost with a, with a massive payoff at the other mm. end. Uh, it will free up a, a large portion of of the workforce to be become more uh, integrated into the workforce. Greater Participation from women uh, and men for that for that reason as well. Uh, so I think uh, it is a cost with a with a big benefit attached to
0: it. in that sense, it's a, it's a rare structural
2: change. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Now I've been told that the government actually did consider putting superannuation in it, which is one of the big calls. But but when they looked at that, they just couldn't justify it. It was just too big a price tag. And there's a whole lot of stuff in the budget about gender equity and pay equity. But without super in paid parental leave, it's a bit of a trap for women, isn't it, Ian?
2: It is. I mean, and, you know... History tells us that uh, women traditionally have far less superannuation than men, um, and that's because they leave the workforce for extended periods of time, either to to have a child or to be the primary carer. And, you know, it's it's a situation that obviously requires some deep thought about how we rectify that problem, Uh, and it has to be addressed at some stage.
1: Um, Back to the budget and what we can expect. Um, We know there will be some spending cuts because Anthony Albanese has flagged it and said, you know, cuts are always risky. Former Deputy PM Barnaby Joyce said, and I'm quoting him here, he screwed a pretty good deal for regional Australia by getting the $30 billion funding commitments out of former Prime Minister Scott Morrison. That was around the net zero commitment. Do you think Labor's going to make a big raid on that National Party climate money? Is that basically where the the, the, the new money they're going to spend on things is going to come from? And and where where can you see cuts happening?
2: Uh, one of the big ones would be around superannuation and the generous tax offsets that are required to keep that operation going. I think they might, yeah. I mean, there's been some suggestions that they will limit the amount of superannuation you can have in a fund to $5 million. Now, if you can't uh, it's quite a a decent, lot of money, if you it? can't live <laughs> a decent retirement with five million dollars, I mean, you know, let's face it, we've had some pretty good years recently where you've had ten percent plus returns on mm-hmm. your money. So, you know, with five million, you're getting half a million dollar return. Uh, if you can't survive on that tax-free, well, it's not it's tax free up to one point seven million dollars, and then it's really very, very low tax beyond that. Now, there is no upper limit on this at the moment, and there are funds out there with you know, there's a Couple with about half a billion dollars in them. I mean, it's ridiculous that that this is being this is money that's been socked away and it's being taxed at, a, at an incredibly low rate. So I think it's a
1: super fund with that much money in it. That's no longer a superannuation fund, is it? No, that's a that's
2: a it's uh, an intergenerational it's an intergenerational wealth, wealth, transfer, wealth transfer scheme <laughs> exactly, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so I think they need to, to clamp down that. It probably wouldn't deliver a huge amount of money. I mean, Malcolm Turnbull was the first one to do that. He Put that limit essentially on tax-free gains, and he got
1: walloped for it by did. his own base. He
2: did, he did. But uh, I, look, I think it's pretty hard to argue now. Like as we just, as we just said, that with five million dollars tax, you know, earnings from that five million dollars are very low tax. So the bulk of it tax-free. Um, it'd be pretty hard to argue from anybody that they're getting a rough deal.
0: Mm. Now, in the treasurer is also designing a well-being budget. What's that all about? I know some people have criticised it for being a bit sort of you know mm. bit bit ashram, bit kind of <laughs> hippie. Um, Jim Chalmers, as actually Rebecca Huntley was saying to me on breakfast, he's not exactly a hippie kind of guy. What's he trying to achieve here?
2: Well, there's there are big limitations when you talk when you think about the way we measure. Uh, whether we're doing okay or not. And the main measurement we use is GDP, gross domestic product. And I'll give you a bit of an example here. I was stunned many years ago. Uh, I was working in newspapers at the time as a columnist. uh, And I, I just recall all these economists... You know, absolutely applauding. Firstly, the fact that the earthquakes in New Zealand had leveled Christchurch, uh, and secondly, when um, when Fukushima went under, and the, you know, all these people lost their lives, and there was chaos, and because it was going to be really good for growth, because, because the re- of all the building, the rebuilding. Oh my god! So what GDP does is it is it measures. It measures some things, but it doesn't measure the cost of other things. So it didn't measure what the the value of people's lives were around that nuclear facility. It didn't measure, you know, what the people of Christchurch had It just measured the fact that there was going to be growth from this from this. Yeah, that's such a
1: deficit model, isn't it? And I I was impressed listening to the the Treasurer um, with you, PK2, this week when you asked him about the wellbeing budget and he talked about, you know, people are, are a major resource of this country and if people are not... Uh, doing well you know if there's not resilience if there's not sustainable elements to our way of life then you know then the country can't do well That they are connected and that goes I suppose to education levels it goes to environmental elements it goes to just you know well-being mental health which we know at the moment you know there's a a huge uh, deficit around mental health in this country at the moment post-pandemic so uh, I'm impressed by that kind of that kind of model Mm. for why we need something like
2: this. If you even just think back to our own record on GDP, you know, we had this supposedly we were the best country in the world because we had nearly three decades Mm. of uh, uninterrupted Uninterrupted growth. growth. (laughs) Well, did we, though? Because on the GDP numbers, it looked like we did. But if you do a very simple recalculation and divide that by the number of people, which is called per capita GDP... We didn't have 30 years of uninterrupted growth at all. In fact, we had several quite serious recessions. So the economy as a whole might have been expanding, which made us look like we were heroes. But individually, at various points during that period, we were all actually individually worse off.
1: Mm. And I mentioned education there because, you know, we well know now that we have fallen down the education yeah. scales globally year now. on year. We keep putting more money in and it it's not happening. So this is one of the elements, you'd think, that goes to the well-being of the nation.
2: Yeah, I thought. mean look, you know, the NDIS as well, you know, obviously a program that has delivered incredible benefits and results to a you know, a range of people who have forgotten largely uh, and I'm not just talking about the the people who are who deliberately uh, affected but the carers and mm-hmm. so forth as well. Now that is going to cost a lot more if we want to maintain those kind of standards. That was not properly costed in, hasn't been for for quite a few years now in, in various budgets. Um, so that is going to cost more. So if we're going to maintain those standards and there if there's another way we can actually measure the benefits from that or the costs then so much the better i mean but as a budget uh, and longer term i think we do face some enormous challenges from a budget situation if you look at defense for instance we are clearly entering a phase in the in history where there is going to be a lot more conflict around the world we've got uh, the world you know really splitting up into two blocks and that will require a lot more defense spending than we've budgeted. Budgeted for for many many years how are we going to fund that you know we, we definitely need to take some drastic action in the budget to, if we if we have any ambitions of getting back towards some kind of uh level pegging where we're you know in you know we, we spend more in the in the bad years but we we bring more money in in the good years you know so you have to have a balanced budget over over the longer term
0: Now, we have uh, obviously uh, significant issues going on in the world economy at the same time, Ian. Uh, Jim Chalmers came back from that trip in the US after his briefings, warning us that basically the world economy faces recession. They're still saying, though, that they believe Australia can avoid it. What is the impact it will have on our country too?
2: Look, if the world goes into recession, I think it would be very difficult for us to avoid it. It's possible that we could. Um, I mean, if you hark back to uh, the, the 70s during the, you know, the Whitlam government, uh, which was hailed as a economic disaster, um, but essentially we outperformed the rest of the world. We, The UK and the US both went into recession during that period. We didn't. Um, so it is possible to go through these incredibly inflationary periods and come out, you know, without tipping into, into recession. But it's not an easy thing to do. It's a, it's an incredible challenge to try and buck the trends from the rest of the world. I guess we do have some advantages. We export a lot of the things that uh, that people want and need. But, you know, if uh, China, for instance, really tips over as well, um, there there's our biggest market for our raw materials. So is that going
1: to sort of uh, influence what notice we should take of Treasury forecasts in this budget next week, given that we really don't know what's happening around the rest of the world?
2: Oh, you know, forecasts, it's a pet subject of mine. I mean, <laughs> you know, Treasury, uh, Treasury, the Reserve Bank, nobody seems to be able to forecast weeks ahead, you know. So if you're looking at 10 years down the track, I mean, you'd you look at it and go, okay, yeah, maybe, but you've got to take it with a grain of salt. I mean, you just think back the last few years and even this budget now, we're going to be, what is it? It's a Is it a $150 billion better off or 50? I can't remember the number now, but, you know, it's so much better off from just a couple of months ago. The forecast just really cannot anticipate the changes that uh, that happen so dramatically mm-hmm. over short periods of time. So how you ever expect to have a, you know, any, any kind of logical or reasonable assumption of what's going to be happening in, in two years, four years and 10 years time, it's just, it's not even an educated guess. You might as well just get a dart poured out and mm-hmm. chuck a dart out of it.
1: Well, I'm tempted to ask then why we bother. But anyway, Ian, it's terrific to have you here. Thank Thank you very much for... and <laughs> you're the best. Thanks. You are the best, helping us anticipate this budget.
2: Thanks, Fran. Thanks, PK.
1: We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr
2: Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister.
0: And Dr Rebecca Ray has asked questions. She asks, what if the voice to Parliament doesn't pass? Are we ready to accept what that says about Australia?
1: Well, Rebecca, the point about referendums is they're very hard to pass. I think we've only had eight changes made to the Constitution through referendum in this in the country's history. They're very difficult to pass. The mechanics of you know the the number of states, the percentage of each state that has to vote for change is very difficult. So you know we didn't, for instance, vote to make Australia a republic, yet I think most surveys uh, before and after, have that the bulk of Australians would prefer to be a republic or think we should be a republic. So there's a lot of the mechanics around that, which goes to a lot of things we've been talking about here on The Party Room over the last few weeks, is that, you know, if you muddy the waters in a referendum debate, it can have either anticipated or unanticipated effects. So it might not look like somebody's trying to sink something, but that can be the effect of it. So I don't know about you, PK, but I think if, if the voice goes down, it doesn't mean that Australia is racist. Australia doesn't care about the first Australians. I just think it means we haven't got this right. But I do think it would be at, at, a, at a terrible cost, nevertheless.
0: I think that if we're going to, as a nation, put political capital into this big vote, um, then uh, the power of yes symbolically as well, in terms of the message it sends to Aboriginal people, is very, very important and strong. And so a no vote would be incredibly devastating, actually, for um, the Aboriginal community. but equally, I, I don't I, I think the point you make is an excellent one, so I won't repeat it, but i but I will just say that referendums and how you can pass them does not, you know, it's not like they are so hard that i don't think they are a complete verdict on sentiment mm. you know what I, mean? I mean
1: we did pass the 1967 referendum and that as you say was was a huge philip for indigenous australians and 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 for the nation really and we felt better for ourselves for it we have been talking in this country about the need for constitutional change for more than 20 years and we've had different ideas and different proposals and nothing has happened so mm. you know don't get me wrong i think it would be a sh- terrible uh, thing if we don't progress this now because we have, as a nation, been on this path for a while, but it is hard to do. It is hard to make a change to the constitution through referendum.
0: Look, one of the arguments, I just want to add this, this isn't a question, but I've always wanted to sort of share this. I think it's really important. One of the arguments being used against this Particular um, idea is that it gives, you know, s- special status, or I've even used the word, very controversial word, and I think not appropriate for this, but it's being used by some that it creates apartheid, a different sort of, or, or, or inserts race into the constitution. I just would love, and I'm sure lots of our listeners are, are the kind of nerds that have read the constitution, but give it a read. Because the constitution's already got race in mm, it. It does. <laughs> and it drives me nuts when I hear people suggesting anything different. It's got race in it. And in fact, not un- in this proposal, there is no proposal to take the existing race out of the constitution. Um, but I just find it staggering that anyone could suggest otherwise.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to me too that we talk as though there shouldn't be some kind of um, special place for the first inhabitants of this country. I mean, I mean, I think there should be special recognition and that's why we should have it recognised within the constitution. It's how then we give representation to that, um, you know, in the parliament, for instance, that is a point to be discussed and worked out. And that's why we do need, I think the critics... All sides are right. We need more information around this, around the model, around how it would work so that we can put some of those um, fears to rest, which I think we can.
0: Now, keep sending your questions in. When I put out that shout-out saying send your questions in, lots of people responded. Thank you. Um, You can email your questions too. It doesn't have to all be on Twitter, to at ABC.net.au. Yeah,
1: and you can follow us, of course, The Party Room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode.
0: That's it for The Party Room this week. See you, PK.